The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I want to read to you a number of scriptures, and I've got them on digital format. You'll understand why in just a minute. Uh, but the, go and draw, draw something out. I want you to listen to a, for a word that is going to be very consistent. And I think that will help you to understand what direction we're trying to take today. So I don't expect you'll be able to turn to these, but you can listen to them. Uh, there could be as many as 80, but I'm not going to read 80 different verses. But let me start with these. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. And Jesus went about in the Galilee and in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among them. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And Jesus went about the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and also doing the same. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5, And the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf can hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, And in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, Now after that John was put in the prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 8 and verse 35, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, the same shall save it. Mark chapter 10 and verse 29, and Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for the sake of the gospels. Mark chapter 13 and verse 10. And the gospel must first be published in all nations. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and has sent me unto the brokenhearted. Luke chapter 7 and verse 22, And Jesus answering and said, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, that, you, that the blind may see, and the lame shall walk, and the lepers shall be cleansed, and the deaf shall hear, and the dead be raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. Luke chapter 9 and verse 6, and they departed and went throughout the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Luke chapter 20 and verse 1, And it came to pass that when one of those days he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel to the chief priests and the scribes, and it came upon him with all the elders. And you can go to Acts chapter 8 and verse 25, Acts chapter 14 and verse 7, Acts chapter 14 and verse 21, Acts chapter 15 and verse 7, and about 36 other places and find that exact phrase, the gospel. So with that being said, I want you to answer for me a few questions. I don't mind if you say something out loud, but I would encourage you at least to think about them in your mind. And that is, in order to become a Christian, you must obey blank. The gospel. 
I mean, I've given you the, the test study guide, and now we have it. We must obey the gospel. Second question, and that is kind of sort of like that, and that is in order to be a faithful, and I'll speak more like of me or perhaps some of you have done, in order to be a faithful preacher, one must preach the gospel. Okay, so we got that one too. Got that blank filled in. And then the last one here, in order to be a faithful Christian, one must not be ashamed of the gospel. Of course, all of those, I could have given verses as well to go along with that. So here's the real question. And that is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? When you hear that term, again, it's used 80 times in the New Testament. And you try to define or to determine what it is, the question then, what is the gospel? Well, somebody says, well, I can tell you exactly what it is. I've heard this. Uh, I've said in a class or I've heard a sermon or I've studied my Bible and I've written down a note and here's what it says. The gospel is the good news of God. Amen. That is exactly right. As a matter of fact, when you think about that, the word gospel, as we read it in the English translations, on all 80 occasions that I could have read, I only read a few of them, about a third, but on all 80 of those occasions that that phrase is found, it is backed up by a Greek word translated into the English word gospel, and that is the eulangelion, or the good news of God. Now, the term originally was not used of biblical things necessarily. It wasn't always used in speaking of Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's why oftentimes, out of those 80 times, it comes down and says the gospel of Christ. And that's because it's emphasizing or honing in on what type of good news that is. It was more in time past, even in Jesus' day, a military term. And it would have been used by someone called a herald who would come into a town after maybe some of those men, those soldiers had been out to battle. He would come in with the gospel. And that is, he would say, they have found victory. They have won. And so that's the definition, the technical definition of the gospel. But in many of those 80 cases... We read about how someone, whether it be Jesus or his disciples or maybe some of his others, you know, those uh, specific, those apostles, which are disciples, if you will, on steroids, kind of, sort of. Uh, but as they would go about, they would preach the gospel. You say, well, what would they preach? Well, Jim, we just answered that. They would preach, they would preach the fact that there is good news found in God. Someone says, well, you know, there's a little farther we can dig deeply for that and we can learn that to preach the good news of God is in essence to preach concerning the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Son of God. That's absolutely true as well. But how many times have I really sat down and considered or maybe had to answer? I, I read a study, this has been years ago, so I would hope it would be updated for the positive, but I'm not comfortable in saying that it has been. But I read a study a number of years ago where there was actually a survey done where just that question was asked, what is the gospel? And it wasn't asked among the heathen in the world. It wasn't asked of this, the general public. It was asked of people among, and I'm putting quotes around this because it's loosely, who were parts of churches, so religious groups, 
and they were asked specifically to take down or write down or record what they knew the gospel to be. According to that study, and according to those who supposedly, I guess, graded out the study or that little exam, that test, upwards of 80% of them did not give an adequate answer of any sort. I don't know how true that is, and I can't claim that that study was done among members of the Lord's church, God's children like us, uh, or whether or not it was inclusive of us or, or excluded us. I can't tell you that, but I know that was supposedly among religious people. They could not give a proper description or definition of the gospel. So I think in one sense, just by seeing you mouthing to me, we may be more advanced than that. But on another sense, I'm also well aware of where it falls for me sometimes and that I really need to better understand the gospel so I can better understand what that gospel is that needs to be preached or in turn needs to be shared. So that's why I ask you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Remember how these letters of Timothy are being written. We've got the Apostle Paul being the author of both of these. First and second Timothy is referred to them. He's writing both of these to what he refers to in the text as his son in the faith, and that is Timothy. And he's writing to him in a situation historically, or if you will, culturally, where Timothy has been left over in, in Ephesus, which Ephesus is one of two twin cities of evil, one being Corinth, one being Ephesus in this time and then that day. Timothy has been left in Ephesus to preach while Paul has gone on somewhere else. Paul has had experience in Ephesus, has been there for some length of time himself, but now he's less Timothy. And he leaves Timothy in a position where at least he needs some encouragement, at least he needs some reminders, at least he needs someone to, to give him some extra persuasion or an extra push to do what he was left there to do. What is the answer to that? In short, he was there to preach the gospel. And so in this first letter, let's read down. We're going to allow Scripture to interpret itself in every case, and we're going to allow Scripture to explain and define unto us the gospel. And as we go about and do that, I'm going to keep this in kind of nearby me, these other 80 texts, if we may need any of them. But I want to notice with you a few different things. We're first going to talk about, and I'll give you all three of these up front so you can kind of be watching for them. We're going to talk about the priority of the gospel. There's some urgency. There ought to be some priority that is given to the preaching, the teaching of the gospel in the beginning. Secondarily, we're going to make, and this is mainly what this text is going to do for us, a summary of the gospel. What really is the gospel? We said, well, it's the good news. It's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. This text is going to be extremely precise in honing in even more what that is. So I often refer to this type of sermon as a refrigerator sermon because in my mind I can jot down a text or two. In this case it would be only one verse I would need. Jot it down, put it on my refrigerator, and anytime I need it I could just walk over and grab it and say, okay, okay, here, this is the gospel, this is what I preach, this is what I teach. If my neighbor is lost and my neighbor is struggling or my family member is having difficulty or maybe they've not yet owned up to need for obeying the gospel itself, Here's what I'm going to tell them. And we'll use that. And then finally, if we get to it, and I'll try to move more quickly, 
We're going to finally talk about not just the priority and the summary, but get down to really delving into the potency of the gospel. How powerful is it? What can it do? What are its capabilities? And I think all three of these things are going to be developed in this text. But we've got to get to that. So I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. What I usually say here, I'm dyslexic, so you better grab your Bibles and read. If you want to see what's being said, I may stumble around on it. But 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I besought thee to abide still in Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to, neither give heed to fables and in, in endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, and which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment. I'm in verse 5. It's charity with a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved and turned aside to vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor therefore uh, whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if any man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient and the ungodly and the sinners and the unholy and the profane and the murderers and the fathers of murderers and mothers and manslayers. Verse 10, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind and men stealers and liars and perjured persons, and there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now get ready to mark this in verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which is committed in my trust. So verse 10 verses summary, a listing of what Timothy is to do and what he ought to teach. And more than that, what he ought to reprove or correct. And he says, you do this, Timothy, with the gospel. But again, what is the gospel? Keep reading verse 11. According to the glorious gospel and blessed God which is committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me and counted me faithful putting me, this is Paul talking to Timothy in the ministry. For who was before a blasphemer and persecutor and injurious? For I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord exceeding abundantly with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a, I'm in 15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What are you saying, Paul? The gospel is this fact. Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That is a very concise and precise, in verse 15, definition of the gospel. Is that good news? For sure. Is that something that must remind us of the fact that there was a death, a burial, and a resurrection of our Lord? Absolutely. 
But the purpose for which Jesus came was clear and stood above everything else that he did. And we know he did many things, such as he came to fulfill the law. He came to reprove sin. He came to do things and this and that. But what he really came for was to preach the gospel, which was nothing more than him to say, I have come to save sinners. That's good news. And in light of the list that Paul just gave to Timothy, we find a myriad of group or myriad of classifications, if you will, of sin that is participated in that these people had an opportunity to be saved from. So let's notice these things very quickly. We have to hurry. First of all, I mentioned to you that we would notice, in this case at least, the priority of that gospel. What Paul is telling Timothy here to look at that first phrase or so of verse 15, he said, this is a faithful saying which is worthy of all acceptation. Now, when Paul uses this phrase, and it's very peculiar to him, and it's only used a few different times. It's used twice here in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy, and once in Titus. So that's four. Four different times Paul used the the phrase, in the King James English at least, a faithful saying. There's two Greek words that back those two words up. Faithful saying is the pistos, which is faith or faithful, and saying, which is logos, which is oftentimes interpreted as word and oftentimes is put in place of the name of Jesus. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you a faithful word. So what he's saying is the word that I'm going to tell you or that I'm going to remind you about is something you can absolutely count on. Therefore, it must be given priority. What Paul says is this word, what he's about to speak to Timothy, is the word that is so sure our vernacular would say you can take it to the bank. Jesus came to save sinners. Now he does that with both of those phrases. The first phrase here in verse 15, that phrase of faithful saying, the secondary phrase of it, which is worthy of all acceptation, which means you have to accept it. I won't try to go too Greeky or geeky, if you will, but that phrase there, the idea of the worthy of acceptation in the Greek language comes in such a tense or such a form, the word does, that means you do not have option in this. This is not Paul giving to Timothy to give the others his opinion. This is what I think. This is what I theorize. This is what may be the case. It just might be that Jesus came to save the sinner. Not what he did. You remember many of the Jews thought Jesus came for very different purposes. One of which the main purposes they thought he was there for was to become an earthly king and rule over them and get them out of the bonds of Rome and allow them to have their own society completely free roaming to worship as they choose happened to be the Jehovah God. Wasn't his purpose. He did much for the Jews. He fulfilled the law of the Jews. But he wasn't there for that purpose. This term or this phrase this worthy of acceptation carries with it the idea not of an opinion and not of a, if you will, just a mindset or a thought, but it's an obligation. 
So what Paul says here, you may remember these times you read through uh, the sermons of our Lord and the things that he said. Many times Jesus would pause and Jesus would have a phrase in the English that was where he would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. What's he mean? By him taking that term, that Greek word, interpreted verily, verily, Jesus said, listen up, look up, and live up. That's the definition of that term in some senses. Listen up, look up, live up. And Paul, this is his. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. This is Paul's version of John 3.16, basically. The gospel encapsulated in something short and something that surely is sweet. Now, the next place, and we, that's all the time we'll spend on that. The next place, what Paul does here, not only does he give priority to this, but he does give summary. And that's the majority of 15, the phrase of it. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Think about that. The way he lays this out is very specific and very pointed or honed in on just one very fact. Again, if you want to think about parallels that are similar to this, he's doing nothing new here, really. You think about what John said. Remember back in John chapter 1, verse 29 is your reference. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the baptizer is there. He sees Jesus coming from a distance, and what does he say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He knew what Jesus was for. As a matter of fact, the terms that he's using right there is the first term in this, what Paul lines up by inspiration, and that is, he says, the grace of our Lord, I'm sorry, verse 15, and this is a faithful saying, word of all acceptation, that Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, that's who he's talking about. That's exactly who John was talking about. That's why you read of John saying a similar thing when he meets with Nathaniel and others that come in. Jesus keeps pointing and says, that's the Messiah. That's the Christ. That's the anointed one. Over and over again later on, you find characters like Peter. Remember what Peter said. Jesus comes in. This is in John chapter 6, verse 68 in the context of it. Uh, Jesus having a discussion with his disciples. And what he basically just told them is, you know, we just, we just fed 5,000. We just had all these things. And Jesus had just explained that he was the bread of life and tried to bring a spiritual meaning to this and tried to apply it. And many of them left. And Jesus said to his disciples, those, I assume those 12 sitting there with him, maybe some others in the hearing of it at least, but he says, will you also go away? Peter's answer, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou art the Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. That's what Paul says. Paul writes to Timothy in the first place in summarizing the gospel. He said, the gospel begins with Christ. Unless I'm willing to accept or the world is willing to accept that Jesus is the one, the anointed one, the one given power to be who he was, can't go any farther. Remember the words of Jesus as he's about to depart from this life? or about to descend into heaven, not depart from life. He died and been resurrected, but about to descend into heaven, depart from this earth, if you will. 
recorded in Matthew 28, verse 18 and forward. Mark has an account as well. He said, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Mark's account says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. See, Mark even calls it the gospel. Those are parallels. Jesus said, I get my power from God. In essence, man cannot look to Jesus and say, well, Jesus was just a good man. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. You know, he's referred to as that by many people out of respect even. Master teacher, Nicodemus told him. Having to understand he was a Christ. Number next is the next word, Christ Jesus. Who's Jesus? A good summary of that for your refrigerator sermon that probably lays next to this one is Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. You have a very brief discussion on who Jesus is, what he's capable of doing, and what he has done and will do. But Jesus, in essence, by his name, was said to be that which saves sinners. Jehovah is salvation. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Mary was visited by the angel there, and it was told to her that he shall be called Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. Same thing. See what Paul's doing? He's summarizing. He's the Christ. He's Jesus. Next one he uses there in verse 15. He's the Christ. He's Jesus. And he says, And that one that he just specified came into the world. He came into the world. That's so important. You know, to have someone who's claiming they're going to save someone. Have someone, in the term there means rescue. Have someone claiming that they're going to rescue someone from anything who's standing back in another part of the, I don't know what to call it because I can't define it, but another part of the universe and sets up as, as Christ apparently was seated there or at least in the presence of God prior to Him coming to earth in human form He's seated there by God and he's just looking down. He's saying, I'll save you, I'll save you, I'll save you. I got this. A day's coming and he never, what if he never came? What if he never, what if he never showed up? What if he never walked among us? What if he never experienced what we do? You know, we, we learn of Jesus in the Hebrews letter uh, that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without. There's one difference between us and him. Yet without sin. Guess what Jesus came to do? To make us appear as if we were without sin. That's what this is telling us. So it says, Christ Jesus, the anointed one, came to save, is another way of explaining or, ref, or if you will, translating that out. He came into this world. Next phrase here, I'm still in verse 15, hadn't left it. He came into this world to save sinners. What in the world is a sinner? Literally, those who missed the mark. So, I get that we tend to grade or judge or measure sin based on our perceived severity of such. And there's no doubt that there are differences between sins and how they look and what they do and how they, you know, uh, or, or, or what's the word, how they're seen or perceived. We know that because right at the page, 
Paul took a lot of time in verses 9 and 10, really, really backing all the way up into verse 6 to say it was happening, to talk about those who were committing various and different sins that were carrying people away from God, that were separating people from God. But when he gets down to it in the brass tacks of verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners. You say, well, which ones? Me? Or you? Or him? Yes. All. Similar to the last hour in James, God was no, Christ was no respecter of persons. The gospel is for all. You know, I think about a lot of what we're dealing with in the world today, a lot of what's going on, a lot of this, and I, I happen to be teaching the book of Jude back at home. And if you haven't read or studied Jude lately, I promise you it's like reading the morning newspaper. But it's a reminder of how we ought to stand against immorality, particularly sexuality, and those types of sins that are existing and being forced on us today. Not that we participate necessarily, but, but we accept just be okay with gender neutrality. Just be okay with trans. Just be okay with homosexual. Just be okay with it. Now, Jude is an entire letter that is written to say, earnestly stand up and contend against that such stuff. And he names it out. And he names out different groups such as Israel, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, such as, such as. There are at least six that are listed. I almost said seven. There are six. My fingers said, my mouth said six, my fingers said seven. They're listed in Jude. And he says, look at all these people who denied the authority of God and fell flat on their faces because of it. Similar to what Paul said in the Roman letter, Romans chapter 1, 18 to 25, read about all those sins. All those awful things, again, very much, many of which are immoral and sexual in nature. A good parallel, 2 Peter chapter Three as well, a great parallel to Jude as well as the Roman letter. Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about those who not only participate in such, but those who have pleasure in it. What's the gospel here to do? To save sinners. So those, those things so far then. The, if you will, priority, or you could say urgency of the gospel. The summary of the gospel Christ came into this world to save sinners. And then finally here, and if you want to see it this way, the potency of the gospel. It's great what Paul said. Paul says, of whom I am chief, King James speak. Other translations say, of whom I stand in the front. Of whom I stand out from the crowd. What was Paul guilty of? You say, well, you could narrow it down to a lot of things, but he was guilty of persecution. He was guilty of perhaps murder and at least giving over, uh, if you will, the permission that Stephen would be stoned. I don't know how well you relate that. He was present there. He was a witness to it. He may have been a part of it. Uh, that's Acts chapter 7, 8, 9 in that. 
other sins he could have committed. I think if you were to ask Paul what he was guilty of, and he said much of this in some places, I think Paul would have easily, if we were to stop right now and say, Paul, I just read verse 15. That's the way we see it, not the way he wrote it. But I just read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul, you said you're the chief of sinners. What did you do? Paul might go back and say, well, you know what I did? I desired to be a teacher. And in desiring to be a teacher, what I became involved in was that I became one of those who was a, disobe a lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinner who performed un unholy and profane things. I was a murderer, a murderer of mothers. I was a manslayer. I was a whoremonger. I defiled them. I was a man-stealer. I was a liar. I was a perjurer. And I did things contrary to sound doctrine. Would you say that, Paul? He, he, he most likely would and be quoting God in his own pen. What's the beauty of it, though? The potency of it. Some of those types of sins that I mentioned in Jude, I mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3, I mentioned in Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul tells the Corinthians, he talks about some of those specifically, and he tells them this, thus, and so, and he says, such as were some of you. Paul's writing the church, and he says, we've got people in the church who once were this. What happened? The gospel had been preached. What is the gospel? Say it's the good news of God. Sure. What is the gospel? You say, well, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am likewise chief. You see, the thing about sin is when it's really divided out. No man or woman can stand back and say, well, I'm not as bad as him or her. I'm no worser than them. Worse is a real word from Mumford. I'm no worser. No, but I'm equally, equally guilty. That's good news. Luke 19 and verse 10, you're familiar with. The account there is Jesus. He comes to Zacchaeus. The phrase there in Luke 19 and verse 10 is also as well that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that was lost. Here's a beautiful part. Those who are sinners, those who are lost, including self, Jesus is looking. He's seeking. He desires us. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. Although not in too many words, you literally just heard the gospel being preached. My intention to come today to liberty was not because I enjoy leaving my family behind to worship in some other place by themselves and to do it was not to make my son get up early and ride up. It was to be certain that I did not have to live this life for one more moment without being sure that everyone within this earshot would know this fact. Jesus came to save you. That is good news.
here this morning, you're not a child of God's. The invitation is always open, but we've got a special invitation available now. We're going to sing a song of encouragement to remind you and to encourage you to take advantage of what Jesus came to do. You think about Jesus hanging there on the cross and the blood that must have trickled down and maybe maybe pooled and puddled there in the dust beneath him. We know all about the dust and, and the way that would look right now. Think about that blood. Imagine one drop of that being wasted because that one was for you. Take advantage. If you're more like I am, it's easy at this point to be known as or called yourself as a Christian, a child of God's, and then just for whatever reason just to forget how beautiful it is that the gospel has been preached, that not just Jesus who spoke it, but the Lord who lived it to save a sinner like us. The invitation song is available while together we stand and as we sing. Just to forget how beautiful it is that the gospel has been preached, that not just Jesus who spoke it, but the Lord who lived it to save a sinner like us. The invitation song is available while together we stand and as we sing.